Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. I'm Jason. And today we have with us Neil, who is our network comrade from the From 78 podcast. You will recognize his voice from our roundtable discussions that we do. Neil, go ahead and uh, tell everybody the other things that you're involved in. All right. So the biggest thing I do is I'm a, I'm a professor at a school of social work. I do that for my full-time job. Uh, my side hustle uh, that I do is I do psychotherapy and psychoanalysis for people and have a you know varying number of patients that I do that for at any given time. And then on the internet, I do the From 78 podcast, which is a podcast where I try to talk to people about the ghosts and specters that are haunting them. Uh, ghosts being things from their past, specters, things from their future. So those things that don't really exist right now, but they exist in our mind and they definitely have an effect on us. And I do a podcast called Inform Podcast. Uh, I have a co-host on that. His name is Jared. And we that podcast is where we try to have informal but informative conversations. And our topics kind of are really are usually about some combination of social justice, psychoanalysis, and critical theory. And uh, I also do a newsletter, an email newsletter that I send out pretty much every week called Complex Praxis, which has a lot to do with Lacanian psychoanalysis as well. All right. Yeah. And today we are going to be talking about the unlikely intersection of Marxism and Lacanianism, which I think that the three of us here will all have probably had the same sort of uh, interaction with psychoanalysis and, and Lacan, having come from the same sort of political tradition. And that would be one of just total dismissal <laughs> yeah. and, and having engaged in, in, engaged with it, not at all. Yeah. The, all of the ways in which ignorance can be put on display. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That. Dogmatic so we're, we're yeah. here to learn today. Um, we, I, I, I now feel like I have as much of a grasp of Lacanianism as a, a student in one of your classes would after about 15 minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's actually kind of helpful for me. If you guys don't mind sort of telling me, you know, what is it about the, the Lacan or uh, Lacanian theory or Lacanian practice? I kind of think those are all different things. There's the person, there's the theory that people kind of engage in without doing anything clinical with it. And then there's the clinical practice that is, you know, known as Lacanian psychoanalysis. So out of those things, uh, you know, what are you curious about? What is it that, that made you think that it would be interesting to, to talk about it? For, speaking for myself, um, the only Lacanianism that I've ever come in contact with was Badiou and Zizek's. Mm-hmm. And they both come at it from a Marxist angle. And my key interest in it would be the use, what uses Marxists see in Lacanianism that makes so many of them Lacanians? Um, such as, I mean, there, there's a whole long list of them, but those are the two most popular ones. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm, I'm for, personally, I just think psycho, psychoanalysis is cool, even though I don't know anything about it. I, uh, <laughs> I read, I read about it every once in a while just because it's, it, I'd like to know things. Mm-hmm. And, um, but my, like I said, my primary interest in it would be to figure out what it is about Lacanianism specifically that makes it mesh so frequently with a Marxist worldview. Yeah, I, to, just to sort of expand, expand on that a little bit from, for me, it's, uh, basically what Chris said, but also that, um, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I suppose in this context, much more focused in on like the the theoretical landscape of Lacanianism and how that uh, intersects with uh, with Marxism. Like Chris said, I'm my only exposures to Lacanianism at all are through uh, self-identified Marxist Lacanians, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't have any sort of independent um, education or, or background in psychoanalysis. Though I find it incredibly interesting, and I constantly wish i had studied uh at least you know some in uh in school but i i never did um uh i i focus my 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 undergraduate study uh, one of my my undergraduate majors were uh philosophy and sociology so i was very much more uh focused on social structures and um uh but then in philosophy i was very interested in the the concept of um uh, in Western philosophy of uh, uh, objectivity versus subjectivity and that sort of epistemological or maybe metaphysical gap that exists there. Um, Lacan's got stuff to say about that. And Loads reading and through some of the prepar- preparatory materials here, I was really fascinated to see those threads sort of come out. So that's where I'm coming from and that's where my brain is sort of at as I'm approaching these materials. Um. I want to add one other thing, which is just that, Neil, since we started doing the roundtable for our podcast network, um, I have realized how much a frame of reference I lack. Yeah, exactly. Um, Totally. Because the place that you come from and the lens by which you view the world, at least primarily, is one that is relatively obscured to me. um, And I find myself being really intrigued a lot. by your approach to whatever the world um so i figured it's about time i started to understand it a little bit better all right that's that's that helps me understand kind of where reach you guys are coming from um as you are giving your answers and having listened to the regrettable century for a while now one of the things that that i think is an interesting kind of point of intersection between you know what what you're doing what we're doing with our podcast network, which focuses on things like dialectical pessimism uh, and Lacanian theory and practice is one of the effects that I think engaging with Lacan can have on people. So what what I've noticed, here, I don't know if you guys are at all familiar with this and the listeners probably are not. So I'll just start telling this story. And if it's oldnews.com, just shut me up uh, real quick here. So, you know, Lacan was trained as a classical psychoanalyst, he was a member of something called the IPA, which was the International Association of Psychoanalysis, which was an organization that was, uh, I believe, started by Freud, although I'm not 100% sure on that. Either which way, the, the people who came after him were very much in charge of it, and they had a very strict orthodoxy that they practiced, right? There, was, there were certain things that people needed to do if they were going to call themselves psychoanalysts. They needed to do this. They needed to do it in this way. They needed to do it with these people. There was lots and lots and lots of rules. And Lacan followed them and became an analyst. Uh, there was some, it took him a while actually because as he was becoming an analyst, there was a lot of concerns about his sort of, um, skepticism when it came to orthodoxy. The way that he didn't seem to take to it very much, right? And the way that he thought that what the, he, there's these, these early signs that Lacan kind of puts out that he thinks that what the, the IPA is doing is kind of antithetical to the project of psychoanalysis because the project of psychoanalysis is one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to it 
know, I came to it through social work. I got a master's in social work and I, I came to psychoanalysis when I was getting my doctorate in social work. And it was this uh, set of beliefs and practices that I think had a huge potential for liberation for people. Um, and this is individual people and groups of people, I think. And Lacan saw the potential there as well. And he saw the IPA as being kind of monolithic and preventing that. So eventually he gets kicked out of the IPA. And I can talk about, about the, those reasons a little bit later on. Um, and when he gets kicked out, he starts kind of practicing in his own way. And one of his, his big major projects is he, he continues to do, to do the things he does is to get people to no longer look to an organization, to look to an established institution to authorize them to be psychoanalysts, but to engage in a process by which they learn how to authorize themselves. And I think that that's something that is a a real big thing in like leftist politics now. I think that a lot of times there's uh, what what you guys have referred to as microsex, or, or other groups that tend to have this ability to tell people like you're in, you're out, you're authorized to call yourself a whatever, or you're not authorized to call yourself a whatever. Uh, Lacan was dead set against that kind of stuff, right? Right, pretty much uh, from the early '60s on. That was a huge thing for him. Right on. Yeah, I think that um, when coming up against criticisms of Lacan and psychoanalysis, one of the things that you see most often is that. Uh, these are not real solutions to problems. These are psychoanalysis is at best. It's an, it's a way to make an individual feel better. And I think from what I've gathered from reading uh, various other uh, Marxist Lacanians is that they don't see it that way at all. They see that psychoanalysis isn't confined to just the couch, right? Mm -hmm. It is a, a way to grasp, group psychology as well not just you know and psycho and 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 it, can, and it can expand outward from there you know and one of the things that i i one of the reasons why i find psychoanalysis uh, psychoanalysis to be so uh intriguing is because uh the, for the same reasons that the frankfurt school did and you know like shortly after the failure of the german revolution and the descent of the soviet union into stalinism and the rise of fascism right so what the fuck happened right mm-hmm. well what is going on in people's minds? Like, what is going on in the brain of the worker? And I think that the the same concerns that the Frankfurt School had in those in those times have been amplified a thousandfold in our time. Well, Jason and, and Kevin, do you guys have anything you want to add to that, or, or any additional thoughts that you want to tack on there? I think from the outset, my biggest question is similar to what Jason was expressing earlier: was a lack of adequate framework around all this. I like. I, I hear so often uh, about warring schools of uh, how how we approach psychoanalysis or whether we accept psychoanalysis as an approach at all. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think I just I like it's all foreign enough to me that I just I don't even know what how to make heads or tails of what the criticisms between these are. Why, why is it that uh, Jung is seen so negatively by many people but lacan is uh many leftists but then um lacan is embraced and like i i just i don't i don't understand what the the conflicts are fraser is a freudian and niles is a jungian <laughs> and that's where the, the that's where that conflict comes from i think <laughs> it was from fraser <laughs> <laughs> so the sum total of my knowledge of psychoanalysis comes from watching fraser and then an article uh 
and a chapter of a book that Neil sent us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually watched an episode of Frasier in my oh, life. Shit, I, don't know stand, I don't know if it stands up to the, the test of time, but I definitely watched it as a teenager. And it no, just, it, oh, man, it's I, great. It definitely I watched helps. it like a few years ago. <laughs> is it is it good still? I mean, I, I, I loved it when I was a kid, so I watch it now and it, you know, it's still funny. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's trash television, yeah. but, you know, whatever. Total garbage. So mm-hmm. actually, with with trash television, that's actually a decent end to to kind of try to tackle some of the things that you you all brought up here. So, um, here's when when I started to explore psychoanalysis, I started with Freud because that was the the first thing I had to read in a real serious way, which which makes sense, right? He's the guy who kind of starts everything off. And um, the first when I was getting my my doctorate, the first one of the very first things we had to read was the introductory lectures on psychoanalysis by Freud. And I was really blown away by it because as I, I read it, I discovered that a lot of the things that other people had said about Freud or wrote about Freud were not matching up with what I was reading when I was reading his own words directly. Um, it's funny and, how that happens. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. So I, I got really taken with it and I kind of moved from Freud to, to some other people. Eventually I got to this guy named Donald Winnicott. And Donald Winnicott was really fascinating. And it turns out that, that through Donald Winnicott, he was the guy who was sent by the IPA to kind of like investigate Lacan before they kicked him out. They were like, hey, Winnicott, go check out what this Lacan guy is doing and tell us what you think. And that's how I, I discovered Lacan. And when I, I discovered that, I was like, oh, this is this is the business. This is the thing. So one of the things that um, I noticed that it seemed to be really important to me, and this is, Chris, when you said that psychoanalysis is a thing that makes people feel better, Right away, it made, I, I felt myself going like, wait a minute. I don't, that's not my experience of it. I find that psychoanalysis oftentimes actually makes people feel way worse. Hey, I didn't say that's what I think about it. I said, <laughs> I said that's a criticism that I encountered. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. yeah you yeah. didn't say it that way. So, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I, a lot of people do think of it that way. And I, I, when I, I tell people who are unfamiliar with psychoanalysis that I am one, they say, oh, so you try to help people. And I kind of go like, well, <laughs> kinda. Um, but it, it's a weird form of helping because what I think that uh, uh, psychoanalysis does and Lacanian psychoanalysis in particular does is it attempts to implicate people in what it is that they enjoy. And when people are implicated in what it is they enjoy, a lot of times they don't like what that says about them. They find it to be really <laughs> disconcerting and problematic. Um, they're saying like, so for example, somebody will come in and they'll, they'll say, um, that they have a, a symptom, which is that, uh, they want to, uh, not procrastinate or whatever. And time will go on. And pretty soon what may happen is you might say like, actually, you really love procrastinating a lot. You just want to be able to keep on doing it. Uh, that that's the issue here. If you stop procrastinating, you'd be miserable. It's the procrastination that provides you with a sense of enjoyment. And, uh, you, you don't actually want to stop, right? You, 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 say that to a person and when you say it to them that has an effect on the way that they can continue or not continue to enjoy that thing whatever it happens to be so what i notice a lot of times is uh you know i'll, I'll work with people who are on the left they they seek out a lacanian analyst a lot of times because they are marxist because they are involved in a form of like left politics and lacan is something that they have come across and so they they seek me out and i start talking with them and one of the things that i discover is that they enjoy very often um, not having power. They enjoy not having the revolution. They enjoy 
being on the outs. They enjoy being oppressed and repressed by systems of power and authority, etc. They actually really, really like that. It's providing them with a very, very, very uh, physical sensation of enjoyment when they engage in these kinds of fights. And, and when I say that, a lot of times people get really, really frustrated, irritated. Sometimes right. they get really angry. They fire me. You know, um, it's like that, <laughs> that kid in the beginning of Ghostbusters. He's, you know, the effect, I'll tell you the effect, it's pissing me off, <laughs> you know, um, and that kind of thing. But that's, that's what happens a lot when you engage with it. And that's the, the value, I think, of Lacanian psychoanalysis for the left and for really everybody, but definitely for the left. Right now, it would seem to me, uh, as I kind of participate in the leftist politics that I do, that there is a huge sense of enjoyment of not having power. There is a huge sense of enjoyment in kind of like losing. And yeah. uh, on the conscious level, of course, people say, no, that's not what we want. We want the revolution. That's what we want consciously. Unconsciously, I think there's a different thing which is actually playing itself out in their lives. When I say something is unconscious, real quick thing here. A lot of times I think people have a weird understanding, a non-psychoanalytic understanding of the unconscious. I don't just mean like subconscious, something that you're unaware of. I mean something that is a truth about you that is so disconcerting that you can't know it. So it gets repressed into your unconscious. And when something is repressed, it's not destroyed. It's still there having an effect on you, but it shows up in ways that you don't expect and can't explain, right? Hmm. Uh, the yeah. whole process of Lacanian psychoanalysis is to help people understand why it is that they are doing the things that they're doing, especially if they have a repetitive quality to them. Yeah, that 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 concept came up in that uh, I would prefer not to discussion that we had. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm guessing because it's Zizek and he, uh, <laughs> you know, is a Lacanian, and he talks about the the engagement of the left activist lifestyle with um, systems of oppression and of power as being a sort of. Uh, uh, like a um, an abusive relationship that both people feed off of mm -hmm. and uh, that he says that people get a sense of enjoyment from being mad about what's going on and going out and yelling about it. Right. right. Yeah. The definitely right. the, the the way I before approaching any of this sort of material and having these these sort of uh, tool set to dissect the problem with the way I had conceived of it before was just people approaching left politics as if it were a count their their counterculture you know uh right, the, the right. thing that they identify with that is a subset of of the broader society that is defined by its marginality and they they don't want to lose marginality uh right that's the thing that they want is the marginality and so as soon as anything that could conceivably even advance um uh, the cause of the left beyond the margins of society it's actively shut down and not not in so many words but so much of the left behaves as if that were their true motivations right mm -hmm. like there's no other way to explain the gatekeeping and uh constant refinement and purity testing that happens on the left outside of outside of that like it would be one thing if the popular notion of how to affect you know great social transformation was by an elite conspiracy of like hyper perfected political thinkers and actors and in that case maybe you would want to make it really hard to join you'd want a very very strict barrier to entry but the operative principle and the assumption is that uh, we need everybody mm -hmm. so if we need everybody 
um, why are we making it so hard? And I think I think that that's where this immediately becomes obviously helpful in understanding the mentality of a person who, or or of all of us who. I I don't know if I would say enjoyment, but certainly fulfillment. That they find fulfillment in marginality and in not conscious enjoyment. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, but like in performing the performing resistance mm-hmm. as uh, Kevin, I actually I think that subcultural is the best way to understand it because it reminds me of like the mid to late nineties and being punk. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. Exactly. Which that, being you know that's with people who are like, oh, I'm punk now too, and being like, you know, being a teenager and being like, oh, I don't know, you just got here. Are you sure? You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except like, for now, I'm 35 years old, and I would like to think that that's something you grow out of. And I see people older than me still doing it. I, you know, I don't like. I don't think there's any. I don't know. Maybe maybe Neil can correct me here. Maybe I'm entirely wrong. And and this sort of like countercultural mentality is you know a bad thing uh, writ large. But I. I I don't even see that as necessarily as a bad thing. Just like confine that to your aesthetic tastes, you know, like you're into this really niche, cool thing and you like this kind of music or this kind of art or or whatever, like go enjoy your, your marginality there in your little scene with your friends or whatever. But leave that over there. When we get to politics or political action organizing, this is a space for opening it up and trying to be as large and, and widely influential as possible. This mm-hmm. is this is Kevin making sure that he can still go on a rant against untrue black metal later. Yeah, exactly. It's not true folk. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting as you guys are saying this because it, it speaks to another thing which I think happens a lot on the left and it is the enjoyment of elitism mm-hmm. that yeah. is a huge thing, right? Like uh, somebody shows up and, um, you know, like, I don't know, they're they're new. And uh, they're saying they're into to something. And if there's anything where people are like, oh, okay, uh, what have you read? <laughs> you know, and then like they say whatever they've read and you're just like, oh, that that's where you are. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. that, that that was the, the problem. I mean, Lacan and Lacanians now actually see this as a problem with psychoanalysis, right? Like uh, people will show up and they want to get, they're interested. They want to learn about it. And one of the ways that they can be greeted is by saying, like, well, what have you read? Okay, you really need to go back to Freud. And after you have spent however many years reading the 24 volumes that comprise the standard edition, then maybe, you know, you can come back and talk to us again or something. Like that. But people aren't going to do that, right? It, it doesn't be – they don't have that kind of time. And it's not to say that they shouldn't read any of the 24 volumes. It's just saying, like, okay, well, let's, let's find a place. Let's start there and, and let's figure it out as we go. Lacanians, yeah. I think, are much more interested in that process, right? Like this idea that each individual person who comes to psychoanalysis is going to have their own very idiosyncratic way of engaging with it, learning about it, and kind of like living it out. And it's not going to be the same for any two people, and that's all right. It doesn't need to be. Um, as long as there is a, a true desire to learn about it, then great, let's learn. Let's figure it out as we go. I really appreciated that. I don't know if I'm jumping uh, out of order here, but I really appreciated that um, in your the chapter uh, of the book that that you had written that uh, we read. Uh, I believe it was right at the end. You mentioned that um, it's you're you're doing it wrong. <laughs> if if, uh, if this doesn't seem like the right approach to you, then 
leave it alone, trying to trying to force yourself into an approach that doesn't uh, fit with what uh, doesn't seem useful to you is exactly how you do psychoanalysis wrong and mm-hmm. how, how you can oftentimes actually screw the whole thing up. Uh, and so you presented it in a very like, take this if you find it useful. Uh, don't worry about it if you don't. I, yeah, yeah I like that's, that's the way that they do it in, in the Lacanian world. It's, it's there for those who want it. And if you don't want it, then all right. This goes back to one of my what I was talking about with uh, the, one of the criticisms that I kept coming up against whenever I was would read about Marxist groups criticizing Lacan or actually just generally psychoanalysis is that it is uh, individual solutions and not collective solutions, right? Mm. And then I read by uh, uh, Jacques Alain Miller, who I guess is one of the famous Lacanian Marxists, or he's one of the first. Lacanian Marxists from the 60s or whatever. That's Lacan's son-in-law. Oh. It is? Yep. Oh. Mm-hmm. Jacqueline okay. Miller is his son-in-law. He's alive today, um, doing lots of really, really cool stuff. And I took this note. It said that um, the analytic experience is a collective experience, and uh, psychoanal- psychoanalysis isn't confined to the consulting room. It allows us to grasp the motives of group psychology and collective formations, and the functions of the phenomena revealed at the level of the collective are the same as the functions which are revealed and the phenomena which are unfolded by the treatment. So they are, in Freud's terms, the function of the ego, that of the ego ideal, the phenomenon of identification. So basically, like, by dissecting individual psychology, you can get an idea of what the collective, uh, collective psychology is. And that the collective is made up of a multiplicity of individuals that are all taking the same object as ego ideal. So, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't have the text in front of me. Um, but uh, uh, there, there's a lot in that. So, is that the the, the Turin theory that you're reading yes. from? Yes. All right. So, that's the, the Turin theory of the subject of the school. So... In that, I think what Meller is doing is he's talking about something that, that Freud identified earlier on. He called them group effects. And, yes. um, you know, basically there's an enjoyment that comes with being part of a group. And, and, Absolutely. And that enjoyment, and this is one of the things that I don't know if this is necessarily clear to people who aren't super, like, kind of engaged with it. Lacanian psychoanalysis is, is really, really preoccupied with what is the effect of something. That, mm-hmm. that's what they tend to, I think spend a lot of time thinking about writing about and kind of conversing about, right? So uh, if somebody joins a group, that group can, being a part of it, can have an effect upon them. And one of the effects is, of course, like that, that people enjoy being a part of the group and that they enjoy kind of getting caught up in it. Uh, yeah, one of the, the points that Freud makes is that it is rare to see a not psychotic person engage in a, like a random act of violence or, or vandalism or something like that. You don't see somebody pick up a brick and throw it through a store window just on their own uh, unless they're psychotic usually, right? However, if people are part of a huge mob, well, they're going to do a lot of things that they wouldn't have done just if they were on their own. That's one of the effects of being in a group, right? So in, in bringing this up, I think that part of what Melaire might be trying to do is he's trying to make us, he's trying to implicate you, me, and everybody we know and the enjoyment that we derive from being parts of groups, right? And to say like, hey, this isn't other people's problem. This is your problem. Uh, you, just like everybody else, 
can get really caught up in the fervor of, of being part of a mob. And if you get caught up in that, it's going to have like this very visceral, very bodily sensation of intense jouissance, intense uh, enjoyment. And that will have then have an effect. It will affect your actions and your actions will, you know, have effects on top of them, so on and so on. And, and that's a, a big part of what's going on. I don't know if that actually answers the question or if I, I dodged it. What did I do there? <laughs> um, I don't think you dodged it. I think you just like took part of it and went into more detail than I was expecting. But that's actually cool too. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, I think that like that, what you just said sort of really plays into the, the last topic that we were just talking about. Which is the, you know, the the group enjoyment, and this is a big part of the left in the United States, and I'm sure everywhere else too. The enjoyment that one gets from being constantly banging their head against the wall, fighting against their oppressors, Mm -hmm. and uh, being angry about injustice, and the enjoyment of being part of a group sort of dovetail nicely in the the sort of, you know, sect. The, the appeal of the sect. And I don't just mean like the Trotskyist sect. I mean, uh, even, even the macro sect, like whatever the DSA is or the, uh, the, your anarchist collective or whatever that you're part of. Mm-hmm. You know, that is all what I had, I always referred to as a sort of quasi religious experience. You know, you belong to the congregation and you get that same euphoria from engaging in, you know, going on your permitted march and shouting, it really makes you feel like you're doing something special and you get enjoyment out of that. Well, and, and, uh, and you get enjoyment out of, you know, your, out of your Bible study <laughs> that you do with your friends. And you, when you come to a greater understanding of the, whatever your sacred texts are. So you feel right, like exactly personally having advanced and like you're now in a better, in a, in a higher state of consciousness or whatever it is. Um, and then you have something to impart to the new believer when they come around as well. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. identical to being a part of a church. Yeah, I don't I don't see that as a bad thing though. Like that's not I a don't either. Yeah, I I I I don't know. That I I think it it, it appeals to something human, yeah, like exactly. deeply human in us that makes us like that's why we keep doing it. Maybe, I don't know. Oh yeah, like there's a there's obviously a social utility to mm-hmm. Uh, at least whatever is elemental about this that we keep reproducing. But to be completely unaware of it or unconscious or dismissive of it seems like the best way to make sure you do it in a way which is not helpful. There, There's always something dangerous about about jouissance. Um, and, and that's one of the things that is also a huge part, I think, of, of Lacanian psychoanalysis and in, in implicating people in what they enjoy. Uh, and this is where I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of get on a soapbox here and go for it and say a lot of stuff here. So again, kind of going back to Freud, one of the things that Freud talked about originally, and this is one of the things that gets totally jacked up in, in most of the translations that we read. He uses the word instinct, which in German is the same as it is in English, except it has a K instead of a C. And he mm-hmm. uses the word uh, triba, uh, which is drive. And he doesn't, when it get, everything gets translated to English, everything gets rendered as instinct. They just take the two terms and they make them into one thing for, I think, the sake of consistency. But it's a, a terrible idea because when Freud's writing about instincts, he's writing about one thing. When he's writing about drives, he's writing about a totally different thing. So what are instincts? Instincts are 
things that our body has from the time it is born. And no one needs to teach you instincts. Your body just knows how to do stuff. So um, your body knows how to go to sleep and wake up. It knows how to digest food, extract the nutrients it needs, and to expel the waste. It knows how to breathe, so on and so forth. That's all instincts. Instincts are things that are designed to uh, keep the human organism alive and, and functioning properly. That's what they do. So what Freud talks about is that uh, as we live, what will happen is we'll experience what he calls tension. And tension goes up. This could be something like getting hungry. This could be getting sleepy. This could be getting stressed out, whatever. And then what will happen is at a certain point, uh, our instinct kicks in and in an attempt to bring us back down to kind of like baseline levels of tension. Uh, the thing that he talks about with, with drives is that drives, unlike our instincts, are essentially never actually satisfied. You don't actually get to satisfy a drive. You can satisfy an instinct. If you're tired and you sleep, you can satisfy the instinct. Um, but if you're, you've gotten enough sleep and, uh, you wake up and you're like, oh, I could get some more and you just keep on hitting snooze. That's, that's probably more like your drive being, uh, asserted in that thing more than it is your instinct. Uh, we have a, obviously we have a need for food, but if you take a look at the way that most people eat, that they, they eat more in accordance with their drive than they do with their instinct. If they're eating with their instinct, they would eat a certain amount of food to give them the calories they need to do the things they need to do. And then that would be that, right? Um, but instead we eat way more than we need to. And we, we also eat a lot of junk food that, that doesn't mm -hmm. actually provide a whole lot of nutritional value, but it tastes really good. That's drive. Um, ultimately. Is that jouissance also? It, it is. So yeah. there's, there's a huge amount. And, and the cool thing about the term jouissance is that, you know, we could translate it as to like what gets you off, uh, <laughs> as well, right? Like that's the, the, probably the more accurate translation. It's just that it's kind of tawdry. So people don't render it that way in English. They go with enjoyment. Um, but anyways, in 1920, one of the things that Freud starts to recognize is he thought what people were trying to do was basically maximize pleasure. And he thought that that, that was it. And then he recognized, no, we actually want more. We want to go beyond the pleasure principle, which is what that whole text is about. We don't just want mm -hmm. things that make us, our body feel all right. We want, um, elation. We want, we want sensations that are so far uh, above and beyond what we actually need. And we seek those sorts of things out. And that's what the drive is. Now, the, the thing about drive is that drive is pretty much almost always a destructive thing. When we are engaged, when we're, we're in the service of the drive, when the drive has control uh, or more control over our, our bodies and our minds and our actions, we end up acting in extremely destructive ways. We destroy our bodies. We destroy the bodies of other people. We destroy our social relations. We destroy our environment, etc. Capitalism is one of the best examples I can think of of drive and action, right? If you think about surplus value, if you think about the, the ways that, P, that, that capitalism produces so much stuff that is actually not needed at all, um, but it's, it, there's an enjoyment in producing it and buying it and using it and then putting it in a garbage can uh, and starting the whole process over again. And, and the impact of that, the effect of, of that drive is the destruction that we're seeing enacted upon human bodies and on the world and the life-sustaining environment that those human bodies need to continue living, right? We're seeing those sorts of things. So Lacan, following Freud, sees the drive as something which is problematic. But how do we get out of it is the question that he asks. And one of the things that he comes up with is this idea that if we are able to um, mobilize desire 
desire becomes a way to kind of like interrupt and slow down the forces of the drive. The, to the extent to which we have something that we desire, we uh, are able to not be destructive. So if somebody falls in love, falling in love activates desire. And when their desire is activated, it can slow down their, their destructive tendencies. Now, it's, it's weird because these things are really close together. And sometimes the, the question is, are we dealing with something that, that is a desire or something which is more of like a drive force here? And interpreting that is, is part of what an analyst will do. Um, but that's, that's one of the, the functions which is going on in Lacanian psychoanalysis. And I think it's one of the things that I'd like to see happen a lot in the left, right? This idea of trying to interpret the left's drive forces is the left just uh, under the sway of their drive here when they do things like cancel people. I think they are. Um, that seems very much like the drive to me versus desire, which would be, uh, Hey, you seem to have a different idea. You're talking about something and I have a, I don't know what you're talking about. Can, I, I desire to understand what you're talking about. I desire to understand you and where you're coming from in your experiences, et cetera. Uh, if we can mobilize desire, then what we might actually end up doing is not engaging in the drive so much. Now, here's one of the things about the right is compared to the left, which I think is really interesting. To me, <laughs> the right is all about the drive. They're, they're, and they, they aren't even shy about saying it, right? Like they love the jouissance of the drive. They love the enjoyment of it, of letting the drive take over and like acting in super destructive ways towards whoever they think their enemies are. The left, on the other hand, is also under the sway of the drive, but they like to believe they have this delusional belief that they are in fact not under the sway of the drive, that they're only the good guys um, and that they're not doing anything bad, they're not doing anything destructive, but they are. Uh, the right just is like, yeah, we're destructive. What's the problem? <laughs> That's one of the things that I, I often say about how I almost hate other leftists more than I do conservatives who who like I see more as just unwittingly. I mean, <laughs> they're just wrong. They're just, just wholly. They're just. They're just. Yeah. yeah they're just wrong. Top to and bottom, they're dumb. Yeah. yeah. Total idiots. And yeah. and then leftists that behave in these destructive ways I see as much more insidious and dishonest. Because they, we share the same core beliefs, but they want to use them to destroy other people that are supposed to be their friends and comrades, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas, I mean, when a, when a conservative wants to destroy me, I understand that. Like, I would like to take all of their money and re redistribute it to the poor. <laughs> you know? I, I, please hate me. I, I understand. I welcome your hatred. When right. a leftist does, it's just because we have some, like, difference, like, in interpreting the same text that we both think is important or something you know i mean it's this it's the um it's the, the the narcissism of small differences that that comes out in 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 countercultural uh uh milieus of any of any variety that i i'm familiar with anyway where everybody is like they hate you know uh you you hate the 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 the, the like the 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 variety of punk scene or whatever that's just like a hair's breadth off from the one that you identify with you hate that more than you do like pop music or whatever it's uh it, mm -hmm. because it's like it's not they they almost get it but then they get it wrong in in just key ways and that in, seems to inf infuriate you more than uh uh than you know your total antithesis which you can just sort of like wholly dismiss yeah like there's um there's i guess it's i think it's lenin that says that any small difference can become enormous if insisted upon and it's meant to it's meant to suggest that like 
it's really worth hashing out the details to determine what actually is. But it seems as though we've taken that to mean like, I, I could probably make this a big deal. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what, guys? I think we should make this a big deal. <laughs> let's, let's see how big of a problem we can make. Um, right. Does this make them a Nazi or does it just, yeah, it makes them a Nazi. <laughs> well, it makes them, a, it, it makes them a, a something worse than a Nazi. Which is a Nazi, right, right. which is a Strasserite slash Nazi bowl, crypto, crypto fascist, an unconscious, an guys. unconscious Nazi. It's a person who <laughs> thinks they're on the right side and is trying to be on the right side, but is yeah. nonetheless doing the work of the other side, yeah. infecting um, us with the disease, yeah. you know, that has to be purified. It's Puritanism. That's why you have to you have to struggle even harder against your friends. Uh, to uncover the enemy within than you ha- than you do to struggle with your actual enemy who you recognize as such immediately. Yeah, um, yeah. Hey everybody, Chris here. Just wanted to remind you guys of a couple of things. First of all, we have a Patreon. And if you like listening to us and think we deserve $2 a month of your hard-earned money, please go and sign up. Right now, our patrons get access to irregularly posted content that includes special episodes, where we do deep dives into stuff that might be too nerdy for our main feed, extra content from episodes that go way longer than we expected, and impromptu discussions of events and articles that we think are worth a bit of attention. The second thing I wanted to remind everyone of is that we are now part of the Lost Horizons Network, which is a dialectical pessimist podcasting network that includes us, The Regrettable Century, Red Library, and From 78. You can listen to us, Red Library, and From 78 using your favorite podcasting app, or find us by searching our respective names on Twitter and Facebook. We also have a special Lost Horizons Network collaboration podcast, which is a roundtable discussion including members of all three podcasts. Our network website can be found at losthorizonsnetwork.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Our roundtable discussions will be available to listen on your favorite podcatching app, and also look out for us on social media. Just search for The Lost Horizons Network. And as always... Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help trick the algorithm into thinking that we are important and have something interesting to say. All right, back to the show. So, okay, so that actually gets me um, thinking about part of the reason why I think there is so much dismissal of, let's say, everything we've talked about so far um, in left-wing circles, because it... I could see how it could easily be taken, um, at least at, at at first glance, if you aren't interested in engaging anyways, it it's seen as a way of like trying to explain away something really material without any materialism. So like, why did the Great Purge and show trials in, in the Soviet Union happen? It's like, oh, well, because we have an unconscious desire to be dominated and to... Uh, and to ex- continue to exist in the in defeat at all time, you know, and that seems crazy, right? That sounds like well, that doesn't actually provide us with anything that we can uh, we can work on. So I guess that's a question for for Neil. I mean, it's not really mm-hmm. formulated as a question. It's just I think I see where you're going with it, though. Yeah. 
what the fuck do you think of that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I mean, like, well, yeah, what's the response to that sort of thinking anyways? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it's a totally fair criticism of a huge amount of psychoanalysis. I think it's not a fair criticism of, of Lacan's version of psychoanalysis. Because, uh, again, if you talk to people who are, uh, I, I'm thinking of this too, being a clinician, right? Somebody who actually tries to take this, this stuff and do something clinical with it. Uh, when I talk about enjoyment, when I talk about jouissance, I'm not talking about an abstract, non-concrete thing. I'm talking about a sensation that exists in your body. Right. Mm -hmm. So you were talking Mm -hmm. earlier about, like you said, a Bible study, right? And, and going to that, like you take your body to the, the Bible study in some way, uh, whether it's like a Zoom call like this or, or if it's going to a place at a coffee house or a church or, or what have you, you, your body goes to this place and is surrounded by other bodies in a, in the material world. And that is part of the thing that creates the sensation of enjoyment, right? Like your body starts to get enjoyment, somebody else's body starts to get enjoyment, the enjoyment becomes contagious, uh, and it starts to kind of like spread as through the like emotional Wi-Fi that people have going on. And that's that group effect thing that I, w- I was referring to earlier. If that, that starts, if it reaches a certain kind of like critical mass or velocity, then people start doing some things that they probably wouldn't normally do. And it's because of their physical material body being affected by the enjoyment that they are experiencing from engaging in whatever they're engaging in. Uh, that, that is absolutely a, a material thing that you experience in your body. It is not an abstract thing that you, I mean, yes, you can read about it in a book, of course, but it, it isn't only that. And does that make sense as I say it? Makes a I lot of so. sense to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- I mean, that con, I, that, that immediately, uh, get, brings to mind for me the, uh, my, uh, past sort of attempts at grappling with, uh, the, the, the distinction between the objective and the subjective. Like, you can, you can sort of, uh, describe, uh, 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 the processes and the, the constituent elements of a thing, of a, of a mental state all day long, but it's an entirely different thing to be in that mental state, to experience it. Mm-hmm. That, that phenomenology, that, uh, experience is a, a fundamentally inextricably unique thing. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, I think about this is because I mean, we're it, 2020 is an election year. And when you see things like Trump rallies, what you're seeing is a, you're seeing jouissance being unleashed and, and being just like mainlined into people, uh, at those things, right? And they are loving it. That is a real material sensation. And then when people have that experience, well, then that leads to other things. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm really interested in what is the effect of this? What effect does it mm-hmm. have? Well, the effect that it has is that people get really bold. When they get really bold, they do certain things. Uh, again, like I said earlier, what they might not do if they were just on their own in the world, if they're part of a mob, well, now they're going to potentially behave very differently. That's a real thing. Um, I, I think that the idea of... Lacanian psychoanalysis is that if we can implicate people in this, that we that performs an operation that makes it uh, it changes the way that people can or can't enjoy things. If if somebody points out to you, if they ring the bell and you have this realization, oh my gosh, I enjoy something um, <laughs> that maybe I, I I didn't want to know that I enjoyed it. Well, now that that bell has been rung, you can't unring it. It it changes something. Yeah, I mean, 
I guess we all sort of accidentally rang our own bells when we discovered that we <laughs> that we got that sense of enjoyment from our engagement in sect life. Mm-hmm. It's now something that I think of with you know disdain. Like my my previous enjoyment for that, the the, the perverse pleasure I got from hearing about something that made me mad and wanting to go yell about it, you know? Now now that I recognize that, it allows me to be more detached from things that anger me and to think about them much more clear-headedly than I would have previously. Right. I don't just go rage post on the internet and then decide, hey, guys, let's all get together and go stand on the fucking corner and shout at people that go by with signs, which accomplishes nothing except for, like, feeding that enjoyment. It's just opening up the valve and letting out the pressure, you know? Yep. Um, yeah. So, like, I, yeah, I share those sentiments, but I also think it's probably worth um, acknowledging that, at least in my case, um, despite the clarity with which I can look back on some of that stuff, and despite the, I'll, I'll go ahead and say disdain, like you said, that I um, might have for how mindlessly we sort of hit, you know, engage in these repetitious, you know, rituals of, of pure catharsis without mm-hmm. any like, um, real concreteness to it in terms of like actually achieving goals. Right. I also sort of miss it in the sense that like, I, I miss the jouissance. Like it, I miss the, you can see why it, why it, it's so important to, it has to be replaced with something. Um, right, we like we haven't found anything else that makes us happy yet. <laughs> yeah, like this is a this is a good conversation, and we often have them. We have them all the time. It's not the same thing, though. Um, yeah. I would definitely not ever suggest that this this environment here is the replacement for whatever it was you might used to have gotten out of you know uh, X event happens and it's outrageous, and so we'll have to prepare a statement. And then, you know, you have purpose in preparing the statement and then you have to go out and distribute it or however it, it gets put out into the world. And you feel however... Go yell with signs. Yeah. How, however delusional you might feel, uh, it might be, you feel some sort of sense of purpose or um, or even less than purpose, just a sense of enjoyment. Yeah. And it and it is it is enjoyment, you know. being Going to a protest is fun until, mm-hmm. until it stops, until you can no longer enjoy it because you have looked at it with clear eyes so yeah. now yeah. so now where does the enjoyment come from it's like it's ruining gone. your favorite television show for yourself by realizing that it's stupid <laughs> <laughs> it's funny like as you're you're describing that jason it makes me think of a, a term that gets thrown around in in lacanian circles and it's um stupid jouissance or <laughs> masturbatory jouissance mm-hmm. uh, and what that what they are referring to in that is there are certain things that somebody will do and they're having a blast when they do them, right? Like they're having a very good time. Um, however, they're the only one that is. <laughs> Everybody else around them is kind of like, uh-huh, okay. They're doing that thing that they do. Um, and that's one of those things that the the process of analysis might uh, make people aware of. So when you were talking about the 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 desire that you have to, to sometimes like return to that former kind of like masturbatory jouissance yeah uh, that that's a real thing it's it, the fact that you recognize that it's something that is still desirable to you in some way is actually like really good because that's the thing that prevents you actually from probably from returning to it is the fact that you recognize just how attractive it is it's when mm. people don't recognize the the power of something to, to suck them in that they get sucked into it 
right? But if you kind of go like, hey, I am vulnerable to sect life. I am vulnerable to the enjoyment that that offers me. Well, you're going to, you're going to have, that's going to have an effect on you. And the effect is that you're going to probably be more cautious and more well-spoken than if you just assume that you know yourself and you know your own motivations and you understand everything you need to understand about you, uh, then you're actually in a really bad spot and you're extremely vulnerable to being sucked back into that style of thinking again. So did we just have a breakthrough? (laughs) Is that what that is? (laughs) I think so. Well, I mean, if you want it to be, what the uh, what <laughs> you so. what you were describing, Jason, d- sounded to me like uh, like what I wanted to say, what I wanted to respond with uh, was the thing that you're describing that sounds enjoyable to me is the certainty of moral clarity of that's wrong, this is right. Uh, so when this happens, I do that and this is the correct course of action and that the, there's no, no clouded lack of clarity there. It's just, uh, I, I have certainty and I know that I'm doing the right thing. You know, that's, there is some real enjoyment in that, uh, that you don't get with just the swimming in murky waters and just having no idea where you are or not even certain of where you're going. Or where you're trying mm-hmm. to get to. That's so much harder. Uh, and it's a lot of times not very enjoyable. And I can certainly on one level appreciate the, the necessity of uh, problematizing uh, the things that we feel um, uh, a certain moral certainty about. But at the same time, um, don't, don't we need some, some clarity? Don't we need moral certainty? Uh, don't we need to be able to like, okay. So like I can, there was an experience that I had not too long ago, uh, while I was living in, uh, still in Portland where I went and I had a, um, uh, socialist for Bernie Sanders, uh, bumper sticker on my car. And I went and parked somewhere to, uh, go to a, whatever, to run an errand. And I, uh, uh, went and did it, went, came back out to my car and was climbing in and I heard somebody yell at me or I heard somebody, somebody say something in the distance. I couldn't quite make it out. I got out and I stood up and I asked, I said, you know, what was that? And somebody repeated, uh, a guy, like some kid, some white kid, probably in his late twenties, uh, wearing a cramps shirt, uh, came walking, uh, up and said, uh, he uh, repeated, he said, I, I said, fucking communist uh and to which i had the ability to just turn off all of those filters in my head where i'm constantly like you know avoid conflict uh look at it from the other person's perspective make sure you're not you know being unfair in this situation i could just turn all of that off and just say fuck that guy and just totally let let it out and that was such a good feeling that i so rarely get to have i don't want to lose that i feel like that's a good thing <laughs> i want to know what you said in that moment oh i i don't it's just a screed of like go fuck yourself you stupid piece of shit uh you know i yes so I what, is communist. The what, did, what what is it you want to want, want to make something of it that sort of thing and he just sort of like you didn't you threatened him with like year zero yeah he just kind of skittered away and like you know he didn't know what to make of himself after that. again though that that's the the thing where where kevin's point is well made it does feel incredible to go and like just let loose like like load all the cannons and fire at will the problem is, what is the effect? You know, do you, is that kid any more 
likely now to be somewhat interested in socialism and communism and Marxism and any of those things? Or is he more likely, she more likely to just hate it and to feel more justified in their hatred of it? Um, and that, that's the thing like that, that thing does feel great, but I, I would argue, um, you know, from my perspective that it has, it feels good because it, it's destructive. Destructive things feel good. That doesn't mean that they are good. It means that they feel good. Yeah. Um, I think that this is another one of those places where having a religious, uh, framework as a, as a point of reference is useful for people on the left mm. because, you know, uh, we're meant to be long-suffering and, and and to turn the other cheek, right? And patiently explain over and over and over again. Um, I like how you just use Jesus and Lenin uh, as part of the same sentence in <laughs> describing what needs to be done. Well, they serve similar functions in our lives, don't they? Yeah. Um, and so, like, I, I don't know if this is useful, but like, I'm reminded of a, a time whenever, you know, we were out hawking newspapers on the street corner somewhere way back in my 20s and you know some like small business tyrant came out and said something to us that was you know whatever stupid and shitty and dismissive trying to get a rise out of us um and i asked him who represented him in congress and he was like he named his whatever the representative was and i said oh okay so like you know, uh, you, you have like similar backgrounds and he didn't understand what I was saying at first. And I was like, what do you do for a living? And he's like, well, I'm a contractor. And I was like, interesting. I didn't know that our, our, uh, local rep was a contractor. And he's like, well, he's not. And I was like, oh, well then how does he represent you? And he was like stepping closer and closer. And he's like, what are you talking about? And the whole point of this was that it was like a, it was a, it was a way to get into a conversation about like who actually runs the society. I was like, there's nobody like you in the government. There's nobody like you at any level of government. And he was like, yeah, so? I was like, well, that's what we're all about right here. You know, that's the whole point of this thing. And by the end of the conversation, he was like, well, I don't think I would call myself a socialist, but I don't think you've said anything I disagree with. And I was like, well, carry that with you for the rest of your life. And, you know, maybe maybe one day we'll meet up on, on the right side of the barricades. And he kind of laughed and shook our hands. And he, he, like, gave us a donation even. So in my mind at the time, that was, like, the ideal interaction with a hostile stranger. Because he wasn't actually like a fascist out kind of come like to destroy us. He was just a guy who didn't understand what we were trying to say. And he wanted to lash out at the fact that he didn't understand. On the other hand, uh, I don't think he stopped being a reactionary. And so I don't know if I actually affected anything. But in that moment, that was where my jouissance came from. It was this smug self-satisfaction of having like schooled the guy. I don't know if it had any more use than just saying, you know, when the revolution comes, man, you're back. You're going to be up against the wall. Uh, <laughs> but, but at the time, that was that was kind of my that was what I wanted to embody was that kind of like I will patiently explain and you and and you will get it. So, like you implanting that idea in his head is that's fine. That's good, right? Yeah. But nothing about what he thinks or believes changes until his material circumstances change so the idea is knocking around in his head but ideas don't just change the world on their own you know and and i don't think and i think that that's one of the things and bringing back to this point that i keep making that's one of the things that people mischaracterize psychoanalysis as being is just a bunch of ideas with no material basis right Mm -hmm. 
uh, from my brief reading and interaction with the material, I'm finding that to be 100% incorrect. That Lacanianism doesn't seek to engage only with the world of ideas, but it seeks to understand the way that material conditions affect people and why they respond the way they do to their material conditions. And, um, you know, I mean, it seems mundane. It seems like, yeah, of course, that's what they do. But I think that that's not the way that they're portrayed. It's like the same with philosophy. Though Any ML, you know, is going to tell you that philosophy is bullshit. There's no need for philosophy after Marx. You right. know? <laughs> and, it's done. We're yeah. done with philosophy now. And uh, the, the same thing goes for psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. right? It's like you don't need psychoanalysis. You just need to change the material conditions. Yeah. Right. Well, and as if like existing as an individual. Not all Stalinists, but whatever. <laughs> Hashtag not all Stalinists. even just like not getting deep into it just at the surface it's like existing as an individual is hard so even if you do have to change the material circumstances to ultimately like achieve whatever thing psychoanalysis might want to help you achieve an individual level like being able to continue to exist in order to do the material change seems like a worthy uh uh right like lacanianism lacanianism can help us isolate the things that are going to eventually lead us to all kill ourselves because we're so miserable all the time and maybe stave that off for a bit to allow us to do some good in the world, then it is a very real contribution to other material circumstances in our lives. No, man. Catharsis is counter-revolutionary. If you ever feel good, then you're much less likely to do the thing which will actually make you feel good. Catharsis is counter-revolutionary in politics, but not on the personal level. Right. This is funny because, uh, again, like like psychoanalysis, I think that, that uh, a lot of people are interested in it in like a philosophical way, and they lose sight of the fact that it it is a clinical yeah, practice. Yeah. It's a it's a thing that people subject themselves to uh, willingly because they think there's something valuable in it. And uh, I don't know. It's weird. Like as I'm listening to the, this conversation, the, the thing that comes to my mind, it, having gone through analysis. Is you know what is the effect of analysis on on me and on many of the other people who I I know who have gone through it, and one of the effects is it changes the way that you speak. It changes the way that you talk mm-hmm. to people, a lot. Um, I, I think that prior to analysis, one of the things that I would do is I, I and the analyst that I I saw at one point it kind of like interpreted this to me. He said something along the lines of, you know, y- you seem to really enjoy like like getting in and like like fighting with people. You you like it. It's fun for you. You enjoy the, you know, throwing your jabs and 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 blocking theirs. Like you you get a a distinct sense of satisfaction and enjoyment, joy sense in that. Um, and he's like, but is anybody else like really benefiting from that or enjoying this? Really, uh, maybe the person you're fighting with is, but but maybe they're not. You don't know. Uh, anyway, so now what happens is there's this idea that Lacan brings up. It's called um the the analyst discourse or being in the position of the analyst. And the way that I imagine that working is it's like somebody steps up to you and they like put their fists up to fight, right? And you just kind of stand out of reach so that they can't hit you. They can throw all the punches they want, but they're just going to keep on swinging in the air because you're not there. You're, they see you. You're just not responding to them in the way that they expected that you would by putting up your own fists and being like, yeah, let's do this, right? You're like, okay, you have your fists up. That's interesting. That's all that you do, right? And and they're like, put up your fist, and you'll be like, huh? I prefer not to, <laughs> or or not even that. I think it's it's a lot of times you 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 respond with the most like 
minimal response possible, which is just sort of like, uh, I'm here and I acknowledge that that just happened, but I don't tell you anything that would indicate how I feel about it. And, and that's where I do things like when I'm doing analysis, people will, will say something and I'll, I'll just kind of go, <laughs> you know, like that, that's it. Um, and then what that is, is that's an, an invitation for them to project into that what they want to be there, right? That That's a place for their fantasy to kind of like situate itself. Okay, you did that for this reason. You responded that way for these causes. And sometimes people will tell you that. And then again, you can kind of just be like, that's interesting, right? Uh, and then at a certain point, somebody will, will say something that they seem to be surprised by that has kind of thrown them off balance in some way. And that's when you end the session. You're like, okay, we're done here. <laughs> and you send them out into the world, you know, without explaining it and without uh, putting a bow on it. You're, it's like, okay, you're, you're kind of unsettled. Great. Go, go be unsettled. Cause when you're unsettled, you'll, something interesting will happen to you. You open yourself up to non habitual ways of relating to other people and ideas and yourself, et cetera. Right. Breaking mm. the, the, it breaks the, the the cycle of action reaction and then the thing that sort of like winds itself into mm-hmm. being yeah that's fascinating yeah i mean it's it's one of those things that instead of their their a lot of what times what lacan said is people were trying to have a master they wanted somebody to be the one who knows and what the analyst does is adamantly refuses to play the part of the master right they're not going to do it they're not going to be your master. They're not going to tell you what to think. They're not going to tell you how to get better. They're not going to tell you how to get worse. They're just going to um, be there in a very specific and particular way. And if being exposed to that does something for you, you'll keep coming back and it'll have whatever effect it has. I mean, maybe that's the reason why so many of us have this like inexplicable desire to keep reading Zizek, <laughs> despite the fact that like we think what we think what we want is like a proposal. You know, like this is the solution <laughs> to the thing that is being analyzed, but he never gives it. Yeah. And it's the primary <laughs> like critique, uh, you know. That we always have of Zizek is yeah. it's like, yeah, okay, but what do we do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but then what? He, yeah. was, he was just uh, intentionally leaving us to stew in our own reaction to the thing that he says. Yeah. It turns out that we all have That's it. a psychoanalyst. <laughs> <laughs> it's, his name is Slavo Zizek. <laughs> you want to know a, a, a thing? I don't know if you guys know this. The Jacqueline Miller piece that you uh-huh. I sent for you to, to read. Jacqueline Miller was Slavoj oh. Zizek's analyst. Oh wow, <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, <laughs> I bet that's a hell of a hell of a mm. session to to run. <laughs> Zizek. Uh, from what I've I've seen is that most people would say that Zizek's analysis was not a, a particularly fruitful or successful one. Uh, whether it was or wasn't, I certainly don't. Well, he know. says, but uh. Zizek yeah. says of himself, it's like, and you know I'm a lunatic. I mean, look at all these ticks that I have. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's actually kind of endearing because a lot of people are like, oh, he slobbers too much. And he like, he says and so on and so on. And he's like always moving his wiping hand, his like, face, wiping yeah. his nose. He's, he's on cocaine or something. I was like, no, I think he's just got these really bad nervous ticks that are just left over mm-hmm. from some series of traumas that happened to him you know or it's just a weird dude and that's just the way his it brain weird. works i, mean, I don't know it, something that, that kevin said earlier reminds me of this and it's it, thinking of Slavoy and, and what happened there i think so it seems to me that zizek is very much an obsessive right he he has uh his obsessive way of dealing with hegel mm-hmm. and and other things and and that's what he does so Melair will a lot of times talk about for somebody to enter into analysis proper 
they have to become hystericized, right? Um, the hysteric is somebody who makes a demand. The hysteric says, tell me the answer. Um, this hysteric says, um, give me the right interpretation of linen or, or whoever. Like they, they make a demand. Explain they the loose or I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> totally. Yes. That's a wonderful hysteric demand right there. And they, the, the hysteric demands something of the analyst, right? And then the analyst doesn't gratify the demand. That's, that's kind of their thing. Um, and then through that experience, the hysteric starts to ask themselves, like, why, why is this not going the way that I thought it would? Um, do you not know who I am? Uh, yeah, I, I've made a demand. You're supposed to respond in a certain way. Uh, so on and so forth. Um, and, and, but you have to get to that hysteric point in order to kind of like engage in it. So when, when Kevin was saying something about how do we need truth? I think what we might need is an, a belief that there is a truth out there. I do think that that is a really important thing for people to have. I think that when people have that belief, they construct an identity and that identity is their attempt to perhaps like realize whatever they believe the truth to be. Um, however, identity is an illusion and given enough time, it will kind of break down, right? Um, it, it turns out that being punk rock isn't necessarily the answer to all of the problems of the world. I don't know, man. I was um, very disappointed and- to find that out. <laughs> I feel like I, you know, I stopped being punk at some point and everything is definitely worse. <laughs> But you enjoy it being worse, don't you? <laughs> yes. Yes, he does. I'll answer for him. <laughs> I think that there, there's a, a little bit of overlap between the Lacanian project and the project of the regrettable century. And that is, is that we really want to make people uncomfortable with the things that the, the things that they think yeah. are useful that they're doing and the certainties that they have about what they think that they know is true. And that's not because we think that we have the right answer or anything like that. It's just because that's how we feel. We're profoundly uncomfortable right. <laughs> with with our relationship to the world around us and everything that we've ever believed. And we want to share that with you, you know. Do we want to spread it around. And uh, I, th- that's where I'm in reading about, you know, Lacanianism, I think. As, you know, we've got some overlap. We've got some some shared uh So, that makes me want to mm-hmm. uh, – of the question that I, I maybe uh, uh, kind of said early, uh, at, the, at the outset that was uh, about, like, wh- what is it about Lacanianism that seems to make it – the school of psychoanalysis that seems to have uh, more intersection or cross section with uh, with Marxism than than other schools is that uh, a historical yeah, yeah, that my question too. accident um, mm. that there just happened to be some people who were at that intersection of the two fields and they you know and that and so therefore that's how most leftists get introduced into psychoanalysis or is there something uh, deeper within Lacanianism that makes it more substantively compatible to, with uh, with a Marxist uh, worldview contra, uh, I don't know, whatever other, you know, approaches there might be? I think there are. Um, I mean, so here's one thing, right? Uh, if you go to a Lacanian analyst and that's what you get analysis as opposed to psychotherapy, uh, a Lacanian analyst will never bill your insurance company because they the insurance company then says, okay, we're buying this and that gives us certain rights. And we say that you have to do things this way and you can't deviate from it. And Lacanians just won't abide by those sorts of rules. Um, they, they don't do it that way. So they practice variable length session. 
they practice variable fee setting, right? Like there's some people I, I will have as patients and based upon their material circumstances, they can only afford to pay me a small amount of money for a session, but they show up every week, you know, and they, they engage the process and the process isn't always super fun, but they keep on doing it. Well, okay, great. They're paying even though they're not paying with money, right? And this is very much a, a idea of Lacan is that people pay for the work but they don't only pay with, with dollars or whatever the currency happens to be. They pay with anxiety and they pay with time, uh, et cetera, right? That's how, how they pay for things. There's also this idea that um, a lot of times when, when I, I, you know, I, I also am a, a therapist and so I'll, I will bill people's insurance for, for psychotherapy and stuff. People have an expectation of like, I'm giving you so much money and, and that means I'm buying like an hour of your time. And what you can do at that hour, like one of the things that Lacan did is like he would people would show up and they'd pay him for the session and that he would end the session on a certain note. You know, when when a certain note got struck, that's when it was over. And people were like, but I still have more time. And he's like, you don't decide that I do. Right. So <clears throat> part of what I'm kind of trying to get at here is the, the intersection, as I see it, is that Lacanian psychoanalysis is seen as kind of like antithetical to capitalism. Right. In terms of how it's not a commodity that you can value in a way that you that so many other therapeutic practices have become a commodity that can be valued in a certain way. Additionally, this is something that, that I learned. I don't remember when a couple of years back. Um, there's a if you talk to people in the United States who read Lacan, they read him a certain way, which is different than the way that people read him in Latin America. There's a lot of Spanish-speaking Lacanian analysts in the United States right now. And when I've talked to them about how they got into Lacan, they got into Lacan because they were reading political stuff. And Lacan gets grouped in with that political stuff. And Lacan, Lacan's ideas are seen as uh, just one way to realize a political agenda, right? A, a project of sorts, right? Is through Lacan. Uh, and, and all that. So that's another one of the cross sections that I see. Well, why is that? Like why that distinct difference between the two Americas and their respective approach to Lacan? I think that here, one of the things that happened is that psychoanalysis was kind of hijacked by the medical profession. Got it. And that makes uh, sense. That, that had a huge impact on things, right? For up until the 1980s, in order to be a psychoanalyst, you also needed to be an mm -hmm. MD. So to be an MD, you had to be the kind of person who had access to medical school, right? Um, and, which meant that you had to come from a certain set of material conditions. Uh, a lot of times they, they, they had a certain set of beliefs from the experiences they had. In Europe and in Latin America, that was never the case. You never needed, uh, like, you could be somebody who was, you know, an English major and turn yourself into a psychoanalyst. You didn't need to go to medical school to do it. Um, it, it was open. It was available to everybody. Uh, and the project of psychoanalysis, uh, this is maybe what Chris was talking about earlier, too, with the difference between, like, the individual versus, like, the social, the societal-level stuff. Um, socially, there are things where there are institutions that have power and they use that power in an oppressive way. Uh, and that's one of the things that, you know, Marx was so good at describing as the way that, that that gets done. Freud comes along and he's talking about our own libidable, libidinal economies and the ways in which we kind of our own psyches oppress us. Right. Um, and the, the libido or enjoyment is sort of the, 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 the currency that gets used to do this. And so they, they get grouped together. Um, and, 
the the people I know from Latin America who are analysts now, you know, they they read Marx and they were they read Lenin, they read a bunch of people and they were reading them because they had these great ideas about liberation at the social level. And then that got paired with people like Freud and Lacan who were talking about liberation at the personal level because the idea was that the project had to happen at both levels. It couldn't happen only at one and be as effective as if it were to happen at both. So like the idea is that liberation happens, the base is changed, right? But the superstructure is changes as a result of the base being changed. And in the change of the superstructure, so goes the changing of our minds, right? So that's the mm-hmm. way that... Right. One directional, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that they say, well, after a few generations, the muck of ages will be wiped away and then we'll be able to live cooperatively in like a full communist sort of... And I, I say, okay, sure. But like in that process, how do we divest ourselves? How do we divest ourselves of the muck of ages? Psychoanalysis seems like a good way to help us identify the things that we use to oppress ourselves that are left mm-hmm. over from the conditioning that we have as a result of the the weight of the muck of ages being on us. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I came across, and I wish I would have written down where it came from, is that uh, part of the appeal of Lacan to Marxists is that Lacan rejects the valorization of the ego. And mm-hmm. that is fundamentally anti-bourgeois because the entire bourgeois project is the valorization of the ego in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And that is makes it inherently opposed to the state of being that exists now. You know, we we uh, we live under the rule of bourgeois ideology, and that is counter to bourgeois ideology, which is why, like, I think it specifically this is talking about Badiou and the way that Badiou, um, as a Maoist, is was drawn to Lacan because he that really jived with what Mao said to uh, Mao said about uh, the bourgeoisie isn't just a social class, but it is a form of consciousness that infects all the classes and that in order to combat Mm -hmm. the bourgeoisie, we have to combat bourgeois consciousness. It's interesting that that you say that too, Chris, because American psychoanalysis was ego psychology. That was the dominant paradigm here in the United States. And in many instances, it kind of still is, uh, or self psychology. But in in both instances, you see this idea of like a propping up, a strengthening of the Mm -hmm. ego is the goal of the analytic project. Lacan was somebody who was saying, like, that is not the goal of the analytic project. It's actually antithetical to what we're trying to do here. We're trying to kind of like, in a sense, um, weaken the the power of the ego so that that it, it doesn't have the same kind of like oppressive power to take things and, and repress them into the unconscious where they have effects, but we don't understand what those effects are or where they're coming mm-hmm. from, right? Um, and and that, that that was a huge thing that was being worked against and continues to be worked against in the Lacanian world today. It's like uh, ego psychologists are not our friends. <laughs> Would you say that Lacanianism is anti-individualist? So like there's a story, right, that it, Lacan had somebody come to him who was, a, I think, a priest or something like that. And the priest was like, I think I want to no longer be a priest. I think that the church is wrong. Uh, blah 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 and uh, Lacan's like it sounds like you maybe don't want to do that anymore and the guy was like I don't think I want to do it anymore and Lacan's like well okay sounds like you you know where to go from here right yeah 
You guys like, I, I, I guess I, I guess I do. I guess I, I should stop. And Lacan's like, if that's what you want to do, yeah. So the guy quit being a priest and he tells some other priest about this later on. And that priest goes to Lacan and, and he says, um, you know, I'm really upset because like I heard what happened with this other guy or whatever. And, you know, I, I think that the church is right. I feel more and more committed to the church every day. I feel like I should absolutely like go double down on my involvement with the church. And Lacan's like, well, if, if that's what you want to do, <laughs> you should totally do that. <laughs> and the guy's like, well, I, I do think that I do. And Lacan's like, great. I don't, I don't, why, why are you telling me? <laughs> you know, if, if you know what you want to do, just like, yeah, I'm not stopping you. Or so the, the point of that is, that Lacan wasn't interested in making people do X or Y thing, mm-hmm. right? He was sa- he was more interested in, well, what is it that you want to do? Right. What's stopping you right. from it's, doing that? It's more about killing the cop in your head and unleashing the, you know, embracing the reality of desire rather than mm-hmm. trying to mold desire. Yeah. And I, but I think that whole story is actually probably a fabrication. But, yeah, I don't um, think any priests have it, Lacan. Uh, some priests did actually he was really popular with no priests. kidding okay <laughs> that, yeah yeah it just doesn't seem like the um, kind of guy a priest would go to <laughs> but that's the weird thing like that that's the grain of truth probably in the story is that uh there were priests who were like really interested in lacan because um his his style was useful to them right like i mean a lot of times i think priests do have doubts of course right but they're afraid to talk about them uh and they went to this guy who was like listened to them and then was just kind of saying like hey there's something here you really want to do you know it would probably be good if you, well, you did know, priests also have to do counseling and there are actually some responsible ones that feel like they should have some education uh in mm-hmm. order to do this counseling not all of them but some of them so they, there's like a lot of priests well i know at, at that catholic university where i went to graduate school they uh the psychology program and was full of priests you know I think it, so that your question though is, is he anti-individualistic? That's, that's my thing here. I think that he's, he's not, but I, I don't think that he's either necessarily pro-individual mm-hmm. either. I think what he was really interested in was helping the individual understand what they desired. That, that's kind of it. And that's not going to be the same for every single individual. What one person wants can be really different from somebody else, what somebody else wants. Um, their circumstances might be the same. They might be different. Kind of doesn't matter. What matters more is that they have a desire and that that desire becomes something that they can orient themselves around so that they don't just kind of be pulled into the drive and the way that the drive can kind of like wreck their lives. Yeah, I think that um, I get I'm guessing that Miller probably has the same sort of ideas about the individual and the collective that Lacan did, having been in such close relation to Lacan. And Mm -hmm. uh he he talked about how collectives are made up of, you know, a multiplicity of individuals. So understanding each individual on their own terms was important to understanding the collective, but that those two things, individual and collective, are inseparable. So it's, it's yeah. important to not think of the collective as just the sum of its parts, you know. That's that's where I see a connection between Miller. Um, when when you say Miller, I'm I'm saying Miller. Miller. Yeah, it's the same yeah. Guy. I mean, the, the, I, I read it. I've the... never heard it's pronounced until you said it. So, <laughs> um, uh, most Americans say Miller when they they see it because that's how it's spelled. Yeah, but his two, the first but, uh, two names on there are definitely French. So I don't know why I wasn't already trying to do the French pronunciation. <laughs> I see his project and yours is very similar. And in that that document you read, he talks a lot about being alone, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, and, and there's this idea that he has that part of what a school, for example, can provide for people is, is it's a place for a bunch of lonely people to kind of go and to the extent that they can kind of share their aloneness with other people who are also alone. Uh, and I don't know how to explain it any better than that. I wish I, I could, but I, I just can't. He, he thinks that there's something really valuable in that, right? It isn't about not being alone. It's not about disavowing your aloneness. It's not about getting away from your aloneness. It's actually about being alone, but being able to be alone in, in a certain way, which is tolerable, right? It's, it's a, it's an aloneness that in a weird way you, it, it, it doesn't necessarily feel good, but you enjoy it anyways. Uh, and that there's something in that which can be useful for folks. There, in in some of the what I read, there was discussion of anti-Marxist Lacanianism that sort of uh, regards Marx as. Um, wrong and bad and incorrect and and props up Lacan as as getting it correct contra Marx. Uh there was one article that said, you know, uh well these people are are misreading Marx and and attacking a straw man uh and and in reality, you know, uh the insights of Lacan are often or oftentimes are looking at uh, uh you know the similar insights that Marx had. Uh what, yeah, are complementary to what, what would be um, uh, we've I, I, you, you've sort of addressed the the you know uh, where it is that L- uh, Lacanianism is ends up having a lot of intersection uh, with Marxism, but where is it that uh, it it um, runs counter to Marxism? So, like, uh, what what are the sort of what's mm. the sort of divide I- I between the Marxist Lacanianism versus uh, anti Marxist Lacanianism? Where are they seeing conflict? Huh. Well, I, um, if you ask me this question on a different day, <laughs> maybe I'll have a different answer. But but for today, um, I, I think that Lacan and, and people who are really interested in Lacan are pretty suspicious of ideology, right? In, in all of its forms, including Marxist ideology, right? The, the idea there being that, that there's a... When people deeply into an ideology there's an enjoyment there and that that enjoyment actually has a destructive capacity it shuts down discourse it shuts down dissenting opinions it shuts down the ability to to converse with other people and that's something which is dangerous right um and again it doesn't matter what form it takes it could be you know religious ideology political ideology economic ideology whatever uh and it's just kind of like watch out for that ultimately uh, in all of its guises it's not like, oh, this is the Marxist ideology that unlike all of the other ideologies, this one's different, right? It's like, no, it's really not. <laughs> um, and the, I mean, I think Lacan is also saying the same thing about psychoanalysis, right? Like that psychoanalysis, it, the, the analytic discourse, the thing that separates it from, say, like Marxism uh, is that it's modeled after Socrates. You know, people went up to Socrates and they're like, hey, Socrates, you're so smart. Tell us the things that you know. And Socrates is like, the only thing I know is that I don't know a thing, Right. That's what Lacan was trying to do with psychoanalysis. I think he saw um, Marxism and a whole bunch of other isms as not doing that, right? As actually having an answer. Like, here's the answer. Let me give it to you so that you can have it, right? And he thought, nah, that, I mean, you, you, that's actually a thing. You can do that. That's, and there's people who will want it and there's people who will give that. 
Um, in a different conversation, we had Jason once talked about everybody being charlatans or rubes. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and, and I think like Lacan was trying to say like, I, I am not a charlatan and, and I'm not a rube. I'm, I'm just like, you know, I, I'm trying to tell you that there's no light switch here. Um, uh, ultimately that was, that was his thing. And he thought that m- many Marxists, though maybe not all of them, but many of them were trying to say to people, come follow me. I have the answer. You know, oh, he's and, not and he wrong. Was just really yeah. suspicious of that. I mean, he's he's in France in the yeah. '60s, right? So, like, he's yeah. he's dealing with the French Communist right. Party and all of the little Maoist and Trotskyist sects that exist that all profess to be Marxist, but all have differences that would make them kill each other if they had to, um, and all professing to have the answer. But I think that that Lacan should be sharp enough to should have been sharp enough to realize that Marxism at its best is just a method of criticism and a method of understanding. And that can be, can mm-hmm. be applied to pretty much, you know, any social phenomenon. And I don't know, I don't want to say everything that exists, even though that's what they say. Marxism is a ruthless criticism of everything that exists. I think that's, there's some things that it doesn't apply to. I agree. But um, I definitely understand where he gets that from. Like the, the more vulgar Marxists, which I think are probably a majority of people that adhere to these types of ideologies uh, would say that they have mm, the answer. Yeah. And, and I think that one of the most liberating things for me has been admitting that I don't have the answer and that I'm still a Marxist. Yeah. I think that, I mean, you asked me if I had any, any final thoughts. One of the things that Lacan said in post May 68, when, you know, there was a, a student activist who was saying to him, like, you know, you're, you're not in the streets or what I, they're, they're criticizing him in a variety of different ways. And his response, depending on how this gets translated, it gets translated a lot of different ways. Um, as revolutionaries, you, you seek a new master and a new master you will find as one. Uh, another translation is as hysterics, you seek a new master and a new master you shall find. And this is one of the things that Lacan said that I, I would really like it if people on the left kind of thought about that a little bit, right? Um, so, Sure, a lot of a lot of people I know on the left want to overthrow some form of oppressive social order, and that makes sense to me. I I would like that too, um, but that doesn't mean that they get a they they do away with mastery, right? They're still masters and slaves. They've just changed up who the masters and the slaves happen to be. Uh, I think that in my mind, one of the things that makes psychoanalysis so interesting is that it is trying to uh, subvert that whole thing, right? It it isn't it in saying. There is, I mean, the revolution is, is in many ways a fantasy um, that has an effect on on me, definitely, right? Uh, and, and that is like, wait, is it? Is it actually a fantasy? And if it is, what does that mean for me? And now that that's when you're when you have questions like that, that's when analysis has done its job, when it's provided you with an experience that makes you start to question things as opposed to thinking that you have the answers to things. Because when you have questions, your desire has been mobilized. You now desire to know things that you actually don't know. And that gives you a reason to engage in all sorts of things. Um, as opposed to thinking that you already have the answer, which why would you bother trying to find it then, right, if you already got it? Uh, and I, I think that's just a, a really important thing. My steps 
cover up my tracks To conceal my taste for treason To detach you from me And the hatred offered by a father's heart Will always keep brothers apart That kindness of yours No matter how you try We say, why weep over what? We say, weep until the weeping's done We shall weep for another day For what binds us to our grief Binds the sculptor to his clay Thank you.